Welcome to Unicorny, the antidote to post-rationalized business books. This podcast helps you find out how senior executives, just like you, are building value through marketing. Each episode gives you an insider's perspective of critical marketing issues. Why our guests make the decision they make, how they structure their marketing departments, how they build and measure value, and also what they see coming down the road. This is a show about culture and society. Today, we're going to talk a lot about reputation. Social media, the threats and opportunities it brings, if you like, it is the S in your pest analysis. Now, we've covered the risks and opportunities social media brings companies like yours in episodes of this and other podcasts before, notably in Into the Echo Chamber on the Marketing Trek podcast, and I'm going to link that for you in the show notes. But today, we are joined by Charlotte Lander, Director of Social Media, Corporate Affairs, Brand and Marketing at Standard Chartered Bank. Now, Charlotte was one of the co-authors of a peer-reviewed paper in the Journal of Digital and Social Media Marketing and has recently conducted an analysis of social media's role in the sudden and dramatic demise of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. And with this new evidence and analysis in mind, we are going to bring you fresh ideas and best practice for social media as a reputation management tool in the context of today's culture and societal norms. In the first half of today's show, we're going to hear about the two financial institutions I just mentioned, and we're going to look at how social media impacted them at the time of crisis. We're also going to look at how one CEO used social channels to communicate with authenticity, passion, and empathy during a fatality crisis that caused life-changing upset to those affected. It's a tragic case, but this CEO helped those families through the crisis, and we're going to hear his story a little bit later. Then in the second half of today's show, we're going to dig into practical advice and best practice. But before we do that, I'm always fascinated to hear what changes senior marketers have witnessed in how marketing actually gets done. Normally, I hear about how it's all metrics now and short-term performance-based activity, which kind of, by the way, is sales. Nothing wrong with that, of course. We're all in sales at the end of the day, even if we're not deal closers. We all have our part to play. But I meet a lot of marketers who feel that if they're not closing, they're failing. Now, Charlotte is not one of those. I asked her how she'd seen marketing change over the years. Over the last few years, everything's become much more digital and much more focused. I think there's been a shift from performance marketing to really people understanding the value of brand and trust and how you must connect the two. Sitting in social media, there's definitely been a higher demand from the business. And I can see that with peers and other brands as well, that getting much more active, activating your senior leaders on social and that importance of visibility and your senior leader building trust for a brand has definitely been a a large shift. There was a report out last month that now the majority of FTSE 100 senior leaders are active on LinkedIn. Uh, Do you think they call it personal branding or do you think they avoid that? I think they avoid that. (laughs) But it is, right? It is. Yeah, Yeah. it is. But I think they think probably more from a business sense. Yeah. What is the value for for the business? Which I get. I think so... So when I'm talking about personal branding, I'm not talking about that cynically. I'm, I'm meaning that their personal brand is inextricably linked with the business. And, the, you know, that familiarity is one of the ways that you build trust. And so the more familiar an audience is with that leader, the more they can build trust and the more they can benefit the business. Absolutely. And people don't 
like trust fall in love with objects and your brand yeah. is an object until you can humanize it and give yeah. it human like qualities and your senior leader is one of the best ways to put a face to the brand to start humanizing it we're seeing quite a lot of that at the moment where senior leaders are coming to us asking us to help them with thought leadership not just which topics are trending or which topics we think might be important in a year's time through our labs uh, but then also in helping them structure how they go about building that brand for the benefit of their business so it's a very interesting area i think absolutely and how you bring the purpose and the culture along with it which you'll see that the higher results you get from social media content is that more purpose value driven content yeah. over the thought leadership pieces well that's what we're going to talk about today and and when we first got together, you know, I said, ah, brilliant, this is a podcast about reputation management, but it's about much more than that. I think this is a podcast about society and culture. And what we've just talked about now plays into that, because if you go back 20 years, most senior leaders, they, okay, they might have wanted to be quoted in a trade magazine, but they wouldn't want to be seen to be actively promoting their thoughts, ideals, or, or anything, frankly, on what, what is now social media. And that's a really big culture change I think that we've seen over, over the last few years but we're going to talk about some very specific examples today we're going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse and we're going to talk about uh, the disappearance of Indonesia Air Asia Flight 8501 and we're going to do those specifically because we have changed everything is more transparent everything now is real time and part of marketing's role is to make sure that their leadership is prepared to actually lead when things start to go wrong and you've done quite a lot of work into this area haven't you Shana? I have. And I think whenever you're looking at reputation or how leaders, you know, maybe should perform, you need yeah. to think of the most extreme examples, which these cases are. Let's dive into Silicon Valley Bank now. You've given us the headline. They sent out a request for additional capital. Two days later, it went wrong. Tell us the story from start to finish. So the request went out, conversations started to run and social media was the place that those conversations were happening. And that happened two days before traditional media started to pick up. Um, those conversations were happening between institution and retail investors. Journalists started to get involved. And it was when that moved to depositors that the real problems started to happen. Back in the day, those conversations might have happened on Bloomberg or on you know, a bulletin board or somewhere that wasn't in the public eye. Were these conversations happening on public social media channels like Twitter or X or whatever we call it now and LinkedIn? Yeah, they were absolutely happening in the in the public space. We know that they were also happening within WhatsApp. Part of one of the issues that were underlying for Silicon Valley Bank was a lack of diversity in depositors. They had a huge number of people in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. So whilst we know that WhatsApp also played a role, obviously it's, you can't measure it. So we focused on what, what can you measure within social media, but those conversations were happening and they were happening publicly, um, which is what we've been able to track. I assume they've also happened privately. But again, in terms of measurement, that's difficult to quantify. And the leap from social media to mainstream media is a big one and a dangerous one, particularly if the journalists, I mean, look, let's be blunt, on social media, people have their personal agenda to drive. In mainstream media, they have the sale of other advertising eyeballs or, or sorry, attraction of eyeballs or copies to sell. So they tend to be more sensationalist. They tend to look for an angle that's going to shock, surprise, upset, disappoint or whatever. So that leap from social to mainstream media, was that the final death knell for the bank? Or do you think that the momentum on social media was enough to 
to bring it down anyway. I think it was the momentum on social media. As I said, it started two days before and you can see that it continues to peak even when the media coverage is starting. We then enter a weekend and the media coverage declines but actually those social media trends continue and it was within that period that the conversation obviously among depositors trust was lost and you know it's no longer northern rock situation that we saw with queues around the bank people have the ability to withdraw from the palm of their hands yeah i mean the speed of everything seems to have increased with you know digitalization particularly i was about to say particularly since covid but but the ability to do all of this has been there from before then but i think there's kind of a mentality shift now we're talking about behavior earlier one of the side effects of this digitization and and increase in speed is we're more herd like now than we used to be i think and i think it's that herd heuristic that obviously caused the run on on the bank and you can see that it's that sort of the the speed of which this was communicated on social media and and i know we're going to talk about credit suisse but in both instances of silicon valley and credit suisse there was missed opportunities to counter the narrative and I think a lot of brands, and I'm not saying it was in this particular case, but a lot of brands wait until it hits that tier one media to take it seriously. And what we're seeing with this example is actually there are certain criteria that get hit within social media, then you need to start taking this seriously. But to do that, you need to be listening. And my experience certainly is maybe consumer brands are different, but certainly not a lot of B2B brands are doing social listening and they're just as vulnerable as consumer brands listening and having that early detection is absolutely vital this would have changed a trigger in like the velocity in terms of that conversation that should have been warning those brands early on that actually something is happening do i need to pay attention to it and and what do i need to start doing off the back of that it seems to me there's a fundamental failure here in risk analysis as well that most mature businesses Um, I I don't mean mature by big, I mean mature by not panicking about being startups. Once you have the time to actually consider business rather than just do it, we'll go through a risk management process. And part of that risk management should be what are the trigger events that could cause failure. And someone like an SVB or any financial institution I'm imagining should be going through some kind of risk analysis to say, hey, where are we weak and how are we going to mitigate it? Maybe they hadn't analysed that they had such a concentrated customer base and they hadn't necessarily identified that as a weakness. But once the run starts, and if you don't have a trigger, if you don't have an early warning system, I mean, the inevitability of what happened probably could have been foreseen. Potentially, yeah. But it is that speed. If you do not pre-plan, if you do not look at what are those triggers, because in some of these cases, it's neutral facts that also spread. It doesn't necessarily need to be negative sentiment. Um, So it's what are those triggers that start alerting your systems that kick those frameworks in place? Okay, so I think what was really interesting, I'd assumed that there was a pylon which implies negativity in the posts. You're saying that wasn't the case. Correct, yeah. The factual and neutral statements had as big an impact as negative sentiment. So it wasn't necessarily that people were just piling onto the bandwagon and sharing negative news. Actually, there was a lot of truth in what they were saying and that spread as quickly as that negative commentary. Now, let's move on to the case of Credit Suisse. Tell me the story of what happened to Credit Suisse. The issues with Credit Suisse happened just weeks after Silicon Valley Bank. Now, the issues with the bank had been reported for well over a year, but the trigger came from a journalist that seemed to confirm the rumours surrounding the bank. And that journalist didn't even name the bank. The tweet was, a credible source tells me a major international investment bank is on the brink. 
And that was enough to cement the idea that Credit Suisse was in trouble. And again, start those those conversations online, which again led to obviously the eventual takeover of UBS. So in this instance, there's a tinderbox. Like SVB's just gone down. Everyone's nervous. I remember at the time, everyone thought the banking system was on another brink of collapse. There are plenty of people with memory of what happened last time the banks nearly yeah. collapsed in, you know, 08, 09. So there was a perfect environment. And at that stage, it wasn't named, but that was enough. And everyone knew, I guess, the elephant in the room was that everyone knew which bank was being talked about. Yes, absolutely. And that lack of confidence, that lack of trust was enough. Okay, that's financial services sector and really interesting. I think we're going to come back in the second half of the show to look at how people can get themselves ready or set up to protect themselves against this kind of thing. But there's one other case that we want to look at too, barring recent incidents, which I guess we're going to have to talk about too. Um, It really plays to the importance of senior leadership being, but firstly, social media savvy, but B, having a presence and having trust built on social media. And that is the disaster around the disappearance of Indonesia, Air Asia Flight 8501. Talk to me about Tony Fernandez and just give us a Uh, you know, feel for what happened and how he handled it. Yeah, and I just first want to say why I picked this example, because I think when you think about reputational risk or, you know, what's the worst case scenario, the collapse of your business is definitely one of those. The next is fatalities. And unfortunately, that's what happened in this instance. But Tony Fernandez is the CEO of Air Asia, And until recently, earlier this year, he was also the major shareholder of QPR. He was very prolific on... Twitter X um, and you know shared his views very candidly so in in good times what happened with the flight it was a flight from Indonesia to Singapore that got into technical difficulties and unfortunately um, ended up in the Java Sea killing all 162 people on board and when you have a fatality in an airline business that is a make or break situation you know Do people trust that you've got the situation in hand? Will they fly with you again? And very quickly, what Tony did as the CEO was be very, very present. Within hours, he was talking to families of those those impacted. He was making statements about getting to the bottom of what their commitment was in terms of finding out what had happened and doing everything that they can possible to help those families and, and friends. It's a horrendous event what happened to the families you know and and, and the crew um, so I'm not going to talk about Tony's recent LinkedIn forays maybe until the second half we're going to put some space between that but if you were going to look at those three cases in the round at this stage and say this is the case we're presenting what are the takeaways that listeners should be thinking about from those three of three events when they're thinking about reputation management particularly given today's culture So it's having a credible and authentic leader front and centre. You know, they can express emotions that a corporate brand can't. And we saw that in the AirAsia example. Tony Fernandez actually got positive press coverage, whereas earlier in the year um, there was a Malaysia airline crash and they were criticised for being incompetent, you know, miscommunication not sharing the information that was so desperately needed at that time, that need for information. It's also the ability to share instant but factual updates. You know, that speed is absolutely essential here, but you need to ensure that your facts are correct to stay credible, either as a business or as a senior leader. 
the speed at which you do things is is hugely important. You've alluded it to it slightly, but the controversy in having kind of a big personality and big figures. Now, not everyone is going to be a Tony or an Elon. So when you think about senior leaders, it is always really useful to have a plan about what they will and won't talk about. And in a crisis, actually, how do you involve the CEO in that situation? What are they comfortable with? Um, What position will they take? And, And what information do they need in order to do that? So having a plan in place is hugely beneficial. Okay, let's take a breather there for a minute or two and take stock. I was interested to hear Charlotte's opening observations when she said that she's seen a shift from performance marketing to understanding the value of brand and trust. Hmm, I can see that might well be the case in financial services, which in the main is a mature industry, where winning means churning customers away from an incumbent. Why? Well, A, because that's easier if you've built trust first and brands build trust, but also B, the more mature a market, the harder product differentiation is. So service becomes an important lever in competing. I'm not sure other markets have yet grasped the value of brand. In B2B, it's a growing discussion, and I was interested to see Wonderman Thompson announce more of a move into B2B with a report listing the 100 most influential B2B brands in the world. A few days later, of course, Wonderman Thompson, the last relic of JWT, one of the greatest ever names in advertising, became VML. And it's really sad to see such a great name become a TLA. A TLA is a three-letter acronym, BTW. Anyhow, Wonderman Thompson, now VML, tells us that inspiring brands are five times more likely to be a buyer's first choice. Uh, I read the report. I didn't like it. I don't believe that statistic, but I do believe that brand marketing matters more than most think it does. Why? VML talks about inspiration. I get that, but to my mind, Charlotte is bang on the money. It's all about trust. Charlotte referenced a recent report that said the majority of FTSE 100 senior leaders are now active on LinkedIn. Mm, Why is that? Well, your brand, she said to them, is an object until you can humanise it and give it human-like qualities. So why are those leaders active? Well, they're humanising their brands. Why are they doing that? Hmm, they're building trust. Why are they doing that? Because trust is the essential foundation upon which lasting relationships are built. You know, a corporation can cock up. Actually, we all will at some stage. The winners, though, are those that have earned trust, and the losers are those who haven't. You need to build trust. You can advertise heavily to bring personality to your brand and try to build trust that way. If you have a budget, do it. You can also build humanity into your business by giving people a voice. And the communication channel for that is social media. We covered those three cases in the first half, and I'm going to mention at least one of them in the wrap-up later. But for now, it's all very well saying businesses can build brand trust and authenticity through social media, but I wanted to find out how many of them are actually set up to do that. Here's how part two went. Charlotte, in your experience, how many companies have got dedicated social media, either strategy or communication teams these days? 
when I've spoken to some of my peers, it's often wrapped into the wider marketing approach and they don't actually have a specific social media strategy. Yes, the two need to align, but social media is such a fast-paced, moving environment. I think you do really need to have a clear strategy for each platform that you're going to use as a brand, as well as how you listen within those, that social context. Social media as a service channel is not remotely new. We all know that Ryanair, they're the kind of celebrities of social media service who've built kind of witty and very characterful reputations. Um, and McKinsey recently published a paper, Social Media as a Service Differentiator, where they're talking about the basics of the workflow and basic preparedness. I'm not sure it was an earth-shattering paper, but it is useful, I think, to for businesses to take a more structured approach to service on social. And I think you've got some specific views about that. It was Brandwatch that sort of estimated that 67% of people now look to social media for issues resolution and for me social care is hugely important in terms of how you continue to build the micro conversions of trust so part of trust is how a brand makes somebody feel and if you are doing all you can in marketing and communications to make them feel one way, and when they are a customer, your relationship managers or your customer care team are letting the side down, that's a huge problem for marketing teams, which is why I believe that McKinsey report, you know, tried to align the two, suggesting that, um, you know, they need to work in partnership or even have a social media team sat within the customer service team. And we're seeing that when you look at some brands have really invested heavily in their customer service approach you've mentioned Ryanair you know if you think about innocent drinks they're they're fun they're allowing the brands to kind of the tone of voice the emotion to come through in that way of communication but potentially not enough brands are investing in the training and the skills needed for their customer service teams or their relationships managers to support those clients on social media. It's so important. The way a company behaves, that is their brand, the way they behave and the way they interact with their customers. And I'm seeing, maybe it's a factor in in the downturn, I'm seeing more and more businesses right now cutting their support. It's everywhere I look at the moment where there used to be companies who were good at service and support, particularly on social. Now you're communicating into, into an empty chamber. Talked about Ryanair being a good example. EasyJet is a dreadful example. Try and get service from EasyJet. We're a digital airline where you're not on digital channels. But that service side is really important to me. And you mentioned just before the break that CEOs, uh, the sort of CEO, the leadership, it's important that leadership are seen uh, to have a presence on social too. I know we've talked about briefly how that makes um, a difference when times are tough. But do you think there's a case maybe for the social media frontline being visited by senior leaders in good times as well? Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in advocacy and the power of your senior leaders to share that thought leadership. The data backs it up. So Edelman's trust barometer is showing that the cycle of distrust is growing. But what's useful is that although the who you trust is shrinking, you're much more likely to trust your friends, your colleagues, your co-worker, but also your CEO, more so than journalists, more so than government. So it's really important that now people are focusing more on beliefs and values. You know, they're investing based on them, they're they're joining organisations based on them and they're buying based on those beliefs and values that your leadership is showcasing those values for for an organization and that's only going to become ever more important as we look to younger generations like gen z 
We talked in part one about the speed with which existential crises in the case of SVB and Credit Suisse blew up. And it kind of means to me that every company probably needs to have a crisis plan in place. And um, the crisis plans that many companies have, a lot of companies will do it, their, their communications teams will be putting them through crisis scenarios where they'll be giving them dummy interviews with journalists. This very studio is built partly for that purpose, to simulate an aggressive journalist interview. But it's not just journalists. In fact, it's, it's not even journalists that most businesses need to worry about now because as we saw before, there's an iceberg thing going on. Social media is under the surface, the momentum builds there, and it's only when it breaks the surface that a lot of people become aware of it. So social media planning surely has to be part of a crisis playbook. Talk to me a little bit about how you think businesses should be preparing themselves. It needs to be part of those wider crisis frameworks, but I think you need a specific playbook and framework for social media because it's the speed with which that information flows that you know you don't want to be caught on the hop you need to pre-plan a lot of that so thinking about how you identify potential issues in social media you know thinking language topics how are you going to do that how are you going to monitor and then review that as well within social media what do you have access to what do you don't that evaluation is hugely valuable and, and can be played by that social media team to play into the expertise that you have within reputational risk or media or communications teams. So absolutely, you need that framework that takes you through from identification, evaluation, and then the continued monitoring of that situation in social media, even long after that that situation potentially has has resolved or, or sort of ebbed away. You know, there's going to be some particular reputational risks that may rear its ugly head again and and how do you make sure that you are monitoring for that it's also very important to have a playbook to understand when you should respond and how are you going to do that Um, you know sort of a step-by-step of varying questions of if x happens you know yes or no will I do this next particular step because there's really nuances by platform and also whether you're responding privately whether that's offline, if we're talking about, you know, relationship with journalists, a direct message, a public post in that a particular channel or a reply. Each one brings with it a different set of things to consider within that response. So it's really important to review that playbook in that context of social media. That playbook could end up very quickly because of the complication being a play tome or play series of volumes. I mean, how do you activate that kind of plan? Are there tools out there that allow you to share that kind of action plan and allow you quickly to respond? Yeah, there are tools and agencies that run simulations specifically for social media. So if you have a quick Google, those ones will pop up. Perfect. Um, but also speak to you know your in-house reputational risk teams, your communications teams. There's often run-throughs of crisis scenarios that are happening within your organisation. So how can social media play a role in that? Um, that you know, speak to teams who will also think about what's the worst that can possibly happen yep. in this situation to really kind of stress test that. And any playbook needs to have different levels of severity in terms of the actions that you take, but also the criteria that you set for those particular issues. Let's break the, the playbook down a little bit because it, it, it could get very big and very complicated and I just want to understand some of the, the fundamentals. Problem statements, is that where things start? That's where I always start. I like to think about what's the worst case scenario and then work backwards. But then also go out and think about 
what is it that we wouldn't want to be communicated? Now, that kind of falls into two buckets. That could fall into the bucket of proactive communications from a comms and marketing standpoint. You know, yes, I don't want X being said about my brand, but that's because I've done all this positive work and and that's what I want to be shared and that's how I'm going to proactively communicate that. And then the other side is actually I would not wouldn't want this to be said about the brand and I need to prepare for it and I need the content ready to go, but it's not something that I'm going to shout about right now. And we've talked then about about frameworks. Describe to me the, a framework and how important defined escalation paths are within those. So it's hugely important to have those defined escalation paths. First of all, within your framework, we've talked about the need to identify to review, to sort of monitor, and then whether you respond or not. That's the framework. Yes, but within those, you need an assessment criteria and you need to look at how credible or influential a particular source is. How credible is the content? You know, is there a velocity of change in that topic of conversation? What are going to be your triggers that place that particular message or messages into your categories, you know, high, medium, low, suspicious, threatening, critical, whatever you want to name it, you need a a sliding scale because within each one of those buckets, you're going to need to involve different stakeholders around the business and different people are going to be needing to be involved. So for example, if it's somebody that's very influential complaining about you know, one of your products, is that okay for your customer service team to handle? Do they need help from comms and marketing? Or you know, if it's a journalist, should media be involved? These are all starts of questions that you need to be able to answer within that framework. Okay, you mentioned stakeholders. Now, a lot of marketers and communicators in business will know this, and they'll probably be chuckling to themselves, but sometimes getting stakeholders to come with you or getting their attention is really hard because they've also got day jobs. Who are the stakeholders that are essential at various different stages of a crisis, let's say? And how does the marketing leader bring the company's stakeholders with her before the event and get them to the table where they're prepared to think about readiness? So the buy-in is hugely important and that's where it comes back to those problem statements because usually if you have an area of the business where that problem statements apply to, they're usually more than happy actually to come on board and, and really kind of understand what might be being said about the brand and what you need to do and actually they want control over that messaging. So usually it's very easy to bring people with you if you explain the potential issues as we've discussed today, look at what's happening around you in terms of those other examples. What can we learn from, you know, cases such as the BP oil spill or the cases that we've talked about today that you need to bring through into your own business. In terms of the stakeholders, there's usually a plethora that want to get involved and that's why that criteria and at each level is really important because not all of them are going to be needing to be involved at each level so you're going to have some such as communications marketing media and PR that most issues you're likely to be kind of pulling them in you're going to have that next layer of kind of security whether that's cyber security physical security that are going to need to be involved and how you work with those teams in terms of the listening piece because they will usually have their own listening setups if you're not already aligned so how do you coordinate that who's who's doing what and who's responsible for escalating and then as you start to get much more serious into issues, you know, you start to think about teams such as legal and compliance. Is it going to be your treasury, your finance department? How senior 
do you need to go and and, and when do you need to start escalating to CEOs and, and board members within this framework? And just to be clear, this isn't just about crisis though is it because the framework isn't just about handling the negative presumably the framework is also about how to project the positive yeah you can absolutely use it in that way as well we know that social media is social you know it's it's about that two-way engagement so when you're thinking about resource and and time poor teams what is it that that will add the most value for them to respond and start a discussion on? You know, what is it that they have to respond to from a customer care issue? And what is actually okay to be left in the ether of things um, that are out there or that potentially if you've got a really brilliant community, your brand advocates are going to respond on your behalf? I think it's time we talked about trust because you spent weeks and weeks writing a paper, a year getting it peer-reviewed and probably months researching the thing in the first place. Trust is is kind of everything, I guess. And in, in the days of measurement and metrics, how do you measure trust? Measuring trust is really difficult. Mm. And this is, this is why the paper came about. Okay. Because actually we know that it's important. But how do you quantify that? How do you think about you know, what does trust mean? And trust means different things to different people. So first and foremost, you need to think, what does trust mean for my brand? And what are the kind of hallmarks for that, you know, in terms of when you're thinking about measurement? But Deloitte has a useful framework that has four levers of trust. And I believe it works because it aligns with how our brains work when it comes to building trust. So for somebody to trust you, you have to speak to two parts of their brain. You need to speak to the logical side in terms of capabilities. Can you can you deliver on that ask? And you need to speak to their more emotive side, how you make them feel as a person. You know, do you make them feel special as a brand? Do they feel loved, um, you know, or at least supported and, and are you useful to them? From the little I know about how brain works, mine's pretty much only got one system, but most people have two. (laughs) And um, to get through system one and into system two, you have to have trust in the first place, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's go through. You talked about um, trust drivers in the paper that you published. Are we going to be able to put a link to the paper? Yeah. Because I know in peer-reviewed journals, I went to subscribe thing. This is very exciting. It's quite expensive. I tell you what, I will publish our article on LinkedIn and I will send you a link. Will you send me a link? Brilliant. You can find that on unicorny.co.uk. In it, you published a table that looked at trust drivers, like those desired behaviours and and possible success measures or KPIs for each of them. I wonder if we can explore them one by one. I'm going to do the easier bit. I'm just going to say it. And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Number one, humanity. So this is you being genuinely caring for people's well-being and the the behavior you want to drive is loyalty so in social media a measure for loyalty could be follower growth because we know that people that follow you are much more likely to buy from you outside of social it'll be things like customer lifetime value net promoter score but what we were trying to do in the paper is tie social media metrics to those wider kind of endpoints um, which a lot of people find quite difficult to do yeah, really hard. And in fact, if you go and speak to many marketers, they talk about vanity metrics. And one of the things they talk about, of course, is likes. Mm-hmm. But within specific social media context, likes and follows are engagement measures. Exactly. And you can think of them as micro conversions to trust. Okay. Because you need to have lots of those micro conversions for people 
to trust you you know you need to bring that overall experience and as we yeah. talked about earlier like every touch point needs to be doing their part so actually social media if you can see how it translates into yeah. those additional metrics you can show that kind of journey and the path of how those actions on social media have then translated to much more business focused goals as an endpoint. And we did say we were going to start talking a bit more about behavioural psychology, but it strikes me there are two big effects here that you get through nurturing that kind of engagement. Mere exposure. And we know that mere exposure means that simply exposing a brand to people makes them more favourable towards it. And of course, recency. Those people that like and follow you, you know, if you believe that recency is an important factor mm-hmm. in helping build trust in you, those are two very, very big behavioural psychology effects that you can harness by doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Being useful and helpful to somebody in a situation um, is, is hugely valuable. And there was an interesting study by Stanford University looking at the neural pathways of purchase. And what they found was actually when people see price, their reaction is pain. Okay. And that's because your brain wasn't designed to purchase. Your brain was designed to keep you alive. And it sees money as a resource. So you need, as a brand, to make that person believe there is a bigger reward than that pain if they're going to buy from you and, and not your competitors. Wow. This is another show, but I think maybe that's got buyer's remorse has something to we'll come back to that as another show. That's humanity. Talk to me about transparency. So transparency is the openness and authentic way in which you communicate. It's how you kind of hold your hands up in that situation. The behaviour that you were trying to align with there is advocacy. So within social media, we talked about senior leaders being active on the platform. They're not the only people that can be active um, on social media for the benefit of the brand. So actually employee advocacy, um, there's a lot of metrics in there that you can then align to those advocacy pillars, whether that's people taking up the programme within internally or the products of what's happened afterwards. So how many times are they sharing and what value is that providing to the business? You know, what traffic is that driving? How long are those customers staying on that platform? Capability. So capability is whether you can meet somebody's expectation. Can you do what it says on the tin? Um, And satisfaction ultimately is what you're aiming to achieve there. So Social media, again, you could look at things like post frequency, the average post reach, you know, if you're pumping out content and it's not resonating. So this does link to that follower growth. It does link to the engagement metrics, the vanity metrics. You know, if you're pumping out content and it's not working, why is that? You know, are people satisfied? Are they engaging with, with, with what you're sharing? Is it valuable for them? Yeah, or has LinkedIn just changed the algorithm again and screwed everyone's metrics? I mean, that could be it as well. (laughs) It's mad, isn't it, what they're up to? Anyway, talk to me about reliability. So reliability, that's your conversion point there. So from a social media point of view, that could be lead generation or it could be click-through rate to website. And obviously then that onward tracking is needed to sort of signal that, that final business conversion. But that's why it's important, as I mentioned at the start, to define what trust means for you. And when you're thinking about measurement, how are you going to measure that within your remit? And how do you tie that on, whether that's within sales or brand teams, sort of remits within that wider piece? We know it's all about trust. And these are the four drivers in your paper that you looked at towards building trust. How could listeners use that table in the paper that you've published to help them create frameworks of their own? 
for me, the biggest thing is is how you measure and showcase your success. So this is Deloitte's um, model within those levers. So go have a look at that paper and really think about your own metrics. You know, how can you move away and shift people's mindsets, including your CFO, from this is vanity, this is what you know kids are doing you know anyone can do it on social media to actually this is a real business purpose and this is how social media is impacting positively on our business there is it and how do you tie that with external benchmarks um in terms of you know what creates trust um, how senior leaders now you know are expected to be on the platforms to start activating more of your leadership team omg how good was that Today's is another one of those podcasts where I learned buckets, and I hope you did too. Now, as usual, I'm going to summarise the main points in the show notes on this platform and in the extended show notes at unicorny.co.uk, and we are going to publish a blog on this topic at stateofdigital.com. You know what? I think we're also going to do a LinkedIn audio event, which is a live dial-in, so that you too can take part We're going to give you details of that at the end of today's show, which kind of means in a couple of minutes. And you'll also find it literally everywhere you find information from us. The easiest way to keep up to date is to sign up to our mailing list, which you can do on unicorny.co.uk. Anyhow, before that, let's talk about today's show. In the first half, we looked at the demise of two great financial institutions and the role that social media played. Now, I talked about risk registers, which for anyone who knows me, is very, very unlike me. I am the least cautious, least planned and most gung-ho person, but even I understand the importance of assessing and planning to mitigate company-killing risk. Charlotte talked to us about problem statements shortly after our mid-time recap. One good way to get those is to do a pre-mortem exercise. Assemble a team of diverse thinkers and time machine yourselves five years into the future. Imagine your company just failed. List the reasons. Then rank the reasons and you've got the raw material you need to start drafting problem statements. Now, I just covered a half-day workshop in 30 seconds. It is a little bit more involved in that, obviously, but I hope you get the picture. Incidentally, I've worked with two excellent facilitators in this area, so if you do want to do a pre-mortem, drop me a line and I'll introduce you. I was surprised in our conversation to hear that Silicon Valley Bank didn't have a plan, or at least an effective one, to get ahead of social crises. I remember the shockwaves when they went down. So I was even more surprised to hear that other banks didn't immediately go into planning mode to update their own crisis management plans and their social media frameworks. It's mind-boggling. We then talked about Tony Fernandez and how his social media savvy helped families in the worst possible situation deal with the shock and bereavement of the disappearance then death of their loved ones. He would, or should have been, a role model for senior executive social media presence. Until, that is, October 2023, when for some reason he thought it was a good idea to post a topless picture of himself mid-massage attending a management meeting, wait for it, on LinkedIn. So his social media cred has taken a little dive. But in the big scheme of things... Hmm, I can't unsee the photo, and you know what, it might well have been a little ill-judged. We are talking today, of course, about culture and society after all. But I'd rather back a leader who gets the big calls right and lacks judgement over the little things than the other way round. Ultimately, how you decide to build your brand's humanity is up to you. 
You know, I've stopped talking to B2B brands for the time being about being always on, on social. Ten years ago, I built a 24-7 listening service for B2B. It was definitely too early then. It might even be too early now. But I am seeing more and more demand through our network for media-savvy leaders that want to build trust. If that's you, maybe we should speak some more. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please don't keep it to yourself. Post about it, shout about it, share it, rate it, review it. Help us to spread the word. Right, I'm off to the spa for a massage. No cameras allowed. See ya! This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selvianderson.com.